Hello and welcome to the Adventure Games Podcast. My name is Shorsha Dunbar and I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining me for episode 63 of the Adventure Games Podcast. I hope everybody listening is well. Five years ago, Techno Babylon was released on this month. So to celebrate this anniversary, what better way than to speak to the developer himself? James Dearden was kind enough to speak to me about how he got started making games. He then, of course, spoke about Techno Babylon itself. And he also gave an update on the progress of Techno Babylon 2. Now, towards the end of the interview, there may be some uh, adjustments with volume to the interview. Apologies for that, but I had to rescue the end of the interview. So you can still hear it, but apologies if there's any adjustments or change in the volume itself. So with that, here is a trailer for Techno Babylon and followed by the interview. So please enjoy. Your attention, please, ladies and gentlemen. This may represent one of mankind's greatest achievements. Life, the world, the human condition. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the future. It's not every day something like this happens. How is this possible? Oh god. What a mess. You tried to kill me. You can't be serious. Do you think I did it? Do you think I did it? I have had enough of being used. to regret crossing me. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Adventure Games podcast. I'm here with James Dearden, the developer of Techno Babylon and working on the upcoming Techno Babylon 2. So people may have heard of those games, at least Techno Babylon 1. So how are you, James? I'm very well, thank you. That's great. Thank you so much for joining me. As I told you before we started recording, I've been wanting to speak to you for for a while ever since I started this podcast. I'm a big fan of Techno Babylon. I played it a few years ago when it first came out, and I really enjoyed it, as I know a, a quite a large number of people did as well. So, um, And you've actually been one of the most requested developers to appear on this podcast. And I'm not saying that because you're here that I'm talking to you, but you know, whenever I ask, I ask people, who do you like me to talk to? And your name keeps coming up, so uh, no pressure. <laughs> oh, well. I'll just shatter everyone's illusions about uh, how interviews with me go. 
Oh, don't worry. I've 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 done that a long time ago when I first started the podcast. So no pressure on your end. Um, so now, in case uh, I was wondering if you wanted to introduce yourself first and then say what adventure games, what are your favorite adventure games that you like playing? So either adventure games growing up or if there are any recent adventure games that you're a fan of. Uh, so yeah. Uh, you can take it away. <laughs> Excellent. Well, as as mentioned, my name is James Dearden. Um, I'm based in the UK at the moment, but sort of originally from Kenya. I got into making games in about 1996 and... Uh, so no, 95. And uh, adventure games in about 2010, which is when I first made Techno Babylon's original iteration the first time around when it was a one episode escape room freebie thingamajigger that i spent two weeks on for practicing ags um as for my favorite adventure games i think i number one i'd go back to where i started with them and say fate of atlantis indiana jones um because that was both the first one i played and the first one i completed as well but also Space Quest. I liked Space Quest's tone, but I liked the neat way that Fate of Atlantis did things. Yeah, no, two two classics anyway. Um, Fate of Atlantis it, it keeps popping up uh, when you know for people's favorite adventure games as well, and online as well. I see when people ask for adventure game recommendations. And Fate of Atlantis keeps popping up again and again. No matter if there are people looking for old adventure games. Or recent adventure games, depending on your definition, what is old, what is recent. But that keeps popping up on both sides. <laughs> and uh, Space Quest, yeah, that's interesting as well. I mean, your game, Techno Babylon, in many ways it is different, but they're both sci-fi games. Um, and they're both kind of different as well, Space Quest and Fate of Atlantis. Uh, so, And one Sierra, well, one Sierra series and one LucasArts series, which is quite interesting. So, I know, trying to call controversy. <laughs> I don't. We've we've had people on the show who, one who said that Sierra sucks, another who said that Sierra and Lucasarts both suck. So now I think they're tongue in cheek, but um, but yeah. Do you have any preference of the of the style or anything of the two companies, or do you like both companies' games? Um, I do like both companies' games. They've both made fantastic games, but they've also both made some crap sometimes. Um, That's very true. Uh, for example, um, of the Space Quests, 4 is absolutely my favourite, but I didn't particularly care for Leisure Suit Larry, for example, um, or the later Police Quests. Um, LucasArts, I absolutely loved, um, as a Fate of Atlantis, Sam and Max, but this is going to be heretical. I didn't care for Monkey Island 2. I'm going to get death <gasps> oh, wow. threats over this one. It's my <laughs> least favourite of LucasArts games. Really? And no, everyone has, is entitled to their own opinion, even if they're wrong. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I genuinely believe that everyone is entitled to their own opinions, and I'm not the sort to shout at people if I disagree with them. I think it sometimes can be good. But out of curiosity, what um, is there any reason or any reasons why this is your least favorite LucasArts game? Um, in, I mean, it's been about uh, 20 years since I last played it, but I think what the... I, um, having just played the first one, uh, um, I was expecting something more similar in tone. It was a bit too... 
it kind of felt like it was taking itself more seriously, which is odd for Monkey Island, and it, that's not hugely serious to say, but it's it really didn't feel as light-hearted as the first one to me. Um, but when but when I played the third one, uh, Curse is that Curse? Yeah, the Curse of Monkey Island. Yeah, the 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 more cartoony six forty by four eighty one. I enjoyed that one. That one felt more like what I was hoping for from a Monkey Island game. Which again, I'm sure, is controversial. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, these are all your opinions. I, I'm sure I have some controversial opinions. You know, for example, sure, since when we're we're here making confessions. Now, I did like it overall, but you mentioned Fate of Atlantis. Uh, that's not my favorite uh, LucasArts game as well. I have some issues with that game as well. I think there's some great things about it, but I thought some of the arcadey sequences, you know, the, the hot air balloon, the submarine. And you know, some scenes like that, I thought were, you know, were extremely difficult. And I nearly quit the game several times because I couldn't land a bloody balloon hmm. in the right place. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, it can, we can both get that threat. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I still liked it, you know, overall. I've played it several times and I do like how there's, you know, the three paths. I thought they were very uh, good. But I, I do think that they, with these, action-y scenes that they did kind of increase the length of the game a little bit, which you don't see as much of, thankfully, uh, nowadays. But uh, have you played, before we start talking about your game, we will we will talk about Techno Babylon, I promise you. <laughs> uh, but have, have you played Escape from Monkey Island? Because that's generally people's least favorite of the series. I have, and once again, I quite liked it. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Although in this case, it was because it was, my f- the, it was the first Monkey Island game I played. So I, Interesting. So I okay. think it stuck as a formative memory on that one, and that's what made me decide to go back and take a look at the other three. Right, yeah. So you started with Escape, so maybe if you started with The Secret of Monkey Island or Curse, maybe because uh, uh, Laura, who does the reviews on this podcast, uh, Escape from Monkey Island, I believe she said, was her first ever adventure game. And now she's still playing adventure games, she still reviews them, so... It didn't put her off completely, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, not completely, <laughs> but uh, but interesting. And also, this was the you know the first uh, Monkey Island game that was in 3D, which people always talk about. Now, I don't think it. I I liked it overall. Again, I thought it was okay. I think the controls could have been a bit finicky, and I don't think it's as good as the others, in my opinion. But I don't think the graphics, for example, are terrible. I don't think they're as good as in Curse, but I don't think they're as terrible. But no, that's that's interesting. So you like so you prefer. So now to be really controversial, you prefer Escape from Monkey Island to Monkey Island 2? Yes. <gasps> <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, that was James Dearden, everyone. Thank you very much there for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, look, that's that's interesting. Um, cert- certainly, you know, this is the first time that I've... But again, I'm, sh- I'm sure there could be... You might start people now coming out to say, yeah, actually, James is right. I, I agree with him <laughs> on, on that. So <laughs> you might be a pioneer. So I have a, um, I have a feeling that a lot, what a lot of people, objection people have to... I mean, um, so as with... Actually, this is, brings up something that's coming along with Technobabylon 2 as well. A lot of people in adventure games have a knee-jerk response when it comes to 3D. And I think it's conditioned as a result of things like Escape from Monkey Island... Um, right, I was actually going to ask you about that later. Well, we can talk about that now. Um, well, we can hold off to later. There's a sneak preview here. I, 
Okay, yeah, no, yeah, sure. We can talk about that with uh, with Techno Babylon too, because uh, yeah, no, I do agree, and I have mentioned on the podcast that for for me, it frustrates me when, as you mentioned, there's a knee jerk reaction when people when they see adventure games that are in three D, and still to this day, automatically they dismiss them. Now, not everyone, of course, and I do understand people have preferences, which you know is perfectly fine. You know, we all have them. I have them as well. But when people say, "Oh, they're you know game adventure games in 3D, they're they're not they don't look as nice," and they use Escape from Monkey Island as an example, but then I can go, "Well, there are plenty of other adventure games that are are in 3D that look very nice. For example, Heaven's Vault looks beautiful. Uh, there's Return of the Oprah Din. There's Dreamfall and Dreamfall Chapters, and I could go on as well that I think look good in 3D. But we can talk about that uh, late, later on. Um, is few issues as well." So uh, that that's it's a, a very interesting there, um, but you know, uh, which uh, you know. So now we can talk about you uh, finally. So when did you start? You said you started working on in 1990s on Techno Babylon. So you mentioned first it was uh, Escape the Room type of game. Oh, so so I um, Techno Babylon I started in 2010. Um, okay, but so so you worked on a different game. I worked on first. so I started. Um, so I started experimenting with making games when I was about eight years old, because when I was I was at boarding school at the time. I'm sure I've told people this one before, but here it is again. So the school's computers, they had the rule of um, no games on the school's computers. So I managed to persuade the IT staff, okay, what if we make the games ourselves? They decided to call my bluff on this one and said, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, if you make them yourself, then you can have them on the school's computers. So, you know, crack open, uh, you know, basic uh, books from the 80s on these things, uh, Games Factory, click and play, a uh, couple of old Doom Ward editors, and uh, that's what got me and a few others at school into modding and making games to begin with. Um, and how old were you when you started making games in school then? Uh, started when I was about eight. Eight, you mentioned that. Sorry, yes, when you you mentioned that. So, so you were eight years old when you started making. These, well, that's that's starting young. They were not good games. <laughs> <laughs> some of them were wrote. I mean, still, yeah. well, some of them were wrote copied out of. Um, so back in the old days, like the eighties, you'd get games magazines for things like ZX Spectrum, where you would have pages and pages of code that, if you transcribed it and ran it, it would be. A Space Invaders knockoff, for example. But, you know, still, the very fact that you were able to make a game at eight years old, I think, is impressive. <laughs> I think that's probably why they weren't expecting it at the school. <laughs> so that, so that, um, that gave you the, uh, well, I don't know if I should say this, but the, the bug, shall we say, the game-making bug. Yeah, well, it got me, I mean, it got me thinking about what one could do with these things, and to be fair, back then, a lot of my, well, even still, a lot of my ideas were unrealistic expectations of what was possible. And granted, the technology is now there to make a lot more of these ideas possible. It's just the, you know, the differential between what's, what I can do and what technology can do now, so... Um, but yeah, it was it was what got me started on it, and um, it's uh, it's it's a it's very much an outlet for expression, as it were. If I'm being sort of pretentious artisty, 
No, that's that, that's that's fair enough. That you, you know, we all discover things that we want to, you know, express ourselves in different ways, and you found this way, and you've carried it on now into your adult life, which a lot of I'm sure everyone listening is very happy to to know. So, uh, well, all I can say is thank you to your teacher who allowed you to make a game at eight years old because we. We might not have had Techno Babylon if if he had said if he or she had said no. So. Well, so lurking somewhere on one of these hard drives is um, 1999's classic Stonehenge Racing and Gardening. You know, I would play that. <laughs> <laughs> St- Stonehenge Racing and Gardening. Yeah, it was kind. Of, <laughs> it was so. This was a, a. It started as a joke between myself and my brother in '99, and. Um, we were sort of thinking into because this this was back when there were so many absurd licensed games coming out on things like the PlayStation and PC, but really ridiculous things like um, like that Star Wars kart racing game. <laughs> um, completely, you know, it was a game of based on Big Brother, which was brand new at the time, and so many absurd things. We thought, okay, what's the most ridiculous? license thing one could slap into a game uh, eventually we just we sort of like landed somehow landed on you know stonehenge you know get the national trust to sponsor a game and okay but it can't just be about racing gotta add some sort of other quirk to it uh gardening and that's how we got that so literally then you race around stonehenge and you garden at the same time or is that <laughs> from the title i'm guessing is that what happens um in very very broad <laughs> terms it's sort of a circular track around three uh hinges and a gardening mini game it's it but it's designed to crash or punish the player as severely as possible for doing even the slightest thing wrong as i mean again it was um it was parodying things that were more prevalent in games back then like, for example, Space Quest's um, penchant for punishing players for experimentation. Right, so going very old school. So. Exactly. <laughs> Although, because it was the 90s, I'd say contemporary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very curious. You know, I would actually <laughs> I would actually play that. I mean, I would turn it on at least. I would install it and see how it goes. But... <laughs> But uh, and did, so did Stonehenge? Did the National Trust then fund that game? Or no, no, no. Unfortunately not. <laughs> okay, it's just a joke. They, oh. oh, I mean, it's a, it's a shame in a way if they you told them, yeah, we're making this very serious game about Stonehenge to get people more interested in That's it. Educational multimedia, you, you know. <laughs> exactly, this edutainment game. Is, uh, I don't know if you remember those oh. games uh, back in the <laughs> was it the nineties? I know. <laughs> don't have the best of reputations, but. Um, Eli Mysteries was a good one. I haven't played that actually. Oh, um, I mean, it's, it's so simple in some ways, but it's really—I mean, it really got a laid a lot of the groundwork for illustrating how to think about mysteries in terms of the narrative of these things. I mean, it's not, interesting. I'll have to take a note of it. It's obviously in the kids. There was a sequel set in London, which playing these days, it's sort of so many things it's have changed since the early nineties. With that game <laughs> right yeah the world has well some ways moved on some ways moved back but uh well i'll have to keep an eye on it eagle eye mystery so so i'm guessing you weren't eight years old in 1999 uh, uh i was 12 at the time okay so 
so this is so you're getting the uh the game development uh bug shall we say uh so after i'm sure it, so was this game a success then this stonehenge racing and gardening it uh, really gave you ideas on how to develop your career and skills further well it was successful within the school there was a whole lot of um parody sequels that came after it in all kinds of ways uh, leaning tower of pisa cross-country boat racing and fettuccine making <laughs> was another one somebody else made but um other say lots of that um but uh, that's a, that wasn't one of the more serious i think i started thinking more in terms of actual creative gameplay side of things in the 2000s when i started on modding things like half-life because uh, there was a lot more potential for doing things with that, it felt like, then. And also um, text adventures as well. So that's when I started on that kind of thing. Because um, before that, it was basically like putting together a small machine that ran for about five minutes as a novelty. You know, it was Space Invaders, it was a quick joke game. But um, from 2000 onwards, I was more keen on being able to put narrative into things right so narrative then so if you were to make this stonehenge racing game you put the narrative there that people and gardening so maybe a competition or people would be chasing you and the end of the world make it like mortal combat (laughs) people drawn from all across history and all dimensions Mm. on this ancient focal point of stonehenge and they have to race against each other for some reason i don't know I can I can sense a remake here, <laughs> a HD remake where you add a narrative Mortal Kombat style to Stonehenge Racing, and you know we can get this trending now on Twitter. Hashtag, I don't know Stonehenge Racing. Hmm. <laughs> uh, well, uh, well, that that would be very interesting. I I would genuinely be interested in playing that. <laughs> so if if you're you know if you're tired of you know I don't know Techno Babylon two, you could then work on this i'm sure it'll be just as successful uh so yeah so you said you started working on text adventures uh before techno babylon correct yeah um i think the first time i had to go with one of those was uh, on my uncle's old spectrum he had the hobbit on there um but i got i think it was like 2001 maybe pc gamer had a few on their cover disc um there was a text adventure interpreter program and a few examples and some of them really stuck um things like pick up the phone booth and die um if you've ever played that the the, the title is pretty clear what happens um (laughs) and there was also i think the other one was 915 was what it was uh a text adventure uh, so 9.05, like the clock time, 9.05. Um, that was one uh, It came out in 2000. It That one stuck with me for years because it's a really good example of um, what not paying attention to a scene or what's going, not exploring properly, will end up doing. I'm not going to spoil anything on this game for anybody, but I recommend checking this one out, even if you're not much of a text adventure person usually, because you can probably find it running in a browser these days rather than needing to download everything. Okay, 9.05, and that's... You can play this online? Uh, I expect... Oh, uh, yes. 
I'll see if I can add a link to oh, it. Oh, yeah, there it is. So those are text adventures that you played. Did, did you did you create any text adventures? A few. Them they were mostly experimental. Um, they weren't fantastic. They were kind of getting the hang of the logic of adventures and games because at that stage. Fate of Atlantis, um, Monkey Island, they were hugely influential. And shortly after discovering text adventures, I found AGS because, once again, I think PC Gamer had written an article about it. Um, and that sort of stuck in my head as sort of, okay, this is something that's closer to um, getting ideas in my head out onto the screen. And more straightforwardly than, uh, than modding Half-Life was doing. Right, yeah, so this is, you found kind of what you kind of wanted to be able to tell narratives, uh, to make games with strong narratives in them with AGS, which is a great tool, you know, when, I mean, I've never made an adventure game, but I can see as well how it makes it easier for people, you know, for people you don't need, from what I've read, you don't need to be an, an expert, shall we say, on coding or anything, you need to know a little bit from what I've heard. But uh, and how did you find working on AGS when you first started? Then I suppose I should ask you, since you worked with it, uh, did you find that it was easy enough to understand and to use when you first started uh, using it? Yeah, I followed the logic. Um, as you say, to begin with, so earlier versions of it required even less understanding of how programming and scripting works than these days. There was a lot of just sort of filling in variables here and there, um, and you know, like on the characters' properties, fill those in and the game would do the rest of it and changing the graphics. And you could end up with something that was functionally quite Sierra-ish without much effort at all. But from version, I want to say, three onwards, it became a bit more uh, necessary to know how to deal with the scripting side of it. So the first games I actually finished with AGS as a practice means for getting the hang of the scripting... The first one I finished was a puzzle game, like um, Bubble Bubble sort of thing, match three colors thing, and that was Billy and Desmond's Fantastic Amazing Rainbow Tube. <laughs> right, just with the title alone, again, it's another game that I would play. <laughs> uh, this... so, Bi Bi Billy and Desmond's Fantastic, Fantastic Rainbow... Amazing Rainbow Tube. Okay, and I, I actually have no idea what that game is about for the title. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm curious. Um, the second game I made, I wanted to make a turn-based strategy, so I basically knocked off Advance Wars, um, made a turn-based strategy out of AGS using that. So there's actually several games down the line was where I eventually got to making an adventure game properly with an adventure game, adventure game studio. Okay, so it's interesting because you made other genres, other types of games first with AGS and then later on you made adventure games. That's, I didn't know it was possible to make other genres. So it shows how much or how little I know on AGS. But uh, but yeah, and what was the first adventure game that you made? Was it Techno Babylon or did you make other adventure games before? Well, the first one I finished was Techno Babylon. Um, and at that stage, it was a project that I spent um, two weeks in the evenings um, putting things together. It was, well, essentially it was a, a young lady trying to get out of her apartment that she'd been mysteriously trapped in, in a dystopian city of the future. And I loosely based it on the apartment in South Korea I was staying in at the time. 
it was very messy. So you know, pulling from real life there. Um, mm. And uh, took two weeks. I'm embarrassed to show it to people these days, but people still apparently remember it fondly, which shocks me tremendously. Uh, but uh, it got it got quite positive feedback, so I put together a second part, which was a bit longer, and then a third one, and those three became the first um, the first quarter of the eventual Techno Babylon that came out in two thousand fifteen. Oh, interesting. So that's how you got started then. So that was the first quarter then was released online then for from an AGS? Yes, in about 2000 and, what uh, yeah, 2010 was when I got started on those ones. Um, I, say, I say first quarter, it is basically only the plot and puzzles that carried over and there was a lot of trimming and rejigging between the originals and, um, and the end product. It's kind of like um, Dave Gilbert of Wajitai, he wrote um, Bestowers of Eternity first, and that eventually became the Blackwell legacy. Yeah, I was just about to mention that, actually. That's very... It's funny how similar your career paths kind of were at the beginning, how, you know, uh, Dave Gilbert made Bestowers of Eternity, and then he went on to, shall we say, well, not remake it, but kind of continue it and, uh, you know, expand upon it with Blackwell, uh, the series. And then... So you did the same then with Techno Babylon, and... So what what is first of all what is the reception like to uh, to these first three parts of uh, well Techno Babylon at that well, time? Surprisingly positive because I am not a good artist. I am a terrible artist, absolutely. Um, you know, but uh, I, it was encouraging certainly. I'd also been playing other things people have been making and enjoying those. Um, ben Jordan games are one of the ones I by uh, Francisco mm. Gonzalez. They were. One of the early ones I was playing on AGS as well. That was uh, on Barn Runner too. That was good. Um, uh, the Ben Croshaw games, uh, seven Five Days a Stranger, and so on. And I was thinking, okay, if um, people are enjoying these games in AGS, you know, I was thinking either this community was really, really polite or. <laughs> <laughs> really, I mean, yes, the AGS community was very supportive, certainly, but um, it, it definitely gave me the encouragement to keep on trucking and keep making things better. But um, I say, my art to this day is still terrible in 2D. It's why I outsourced it to Ben Chandler for Techno Babylon in the end. Right. So, so yeah. So then you you went on then, and you then expanded up to what would become Techno Babylon at that stage. Then, so is, is that where you met uh, Ben Chandler? How you got together then afterwards to work on Techno Babylon at the uh, essentially. So my original plan was to uh, put the game together at my end and outsource things like backgrounds and characters to Ben. Um, and because Ben had at the time been working on things like the rejigs of the Blackwell games for Wajitai, I believe it was at the time. Um, that was um, my route into uh, essentially pitching the game to Dave Gilbert. Um, so that... Okay, so the importance of networking here. <laughs> yes. No, because if, if you met Ben Chandler, who was working with Dave well, Gilbert, I've, and I've never met Ben in person, as far as I know. He could be really? he could be an AI in a facility somewhere in Western Australia. <laughs> you know. Is is he Australian or is he is he British? He's, like, a, he's no, Australian. He's, he's, um, 
Okay, that's why because I was I was wondering. I thought I thought he was British, but yeah, no, I remember now uh, seeing somewhere that he was actually Australian. So yeah, because I was going to say but he's British, or he could meet up for a coffee, but no, it's more difficult if he's in Australia. I've I met I've met Dave a few times in person because his wife Janet is British, so uh, he and he comes mm. to the UK for events like Adventure X and um, uh, EGX things like that. Right. Yeah. So. And how did he meet uh, Ben Chandler first? Was it through the forums in AGS? Uh, pretty much. Um, we, uh, I, I played a few of his other things as well. Um, at the so before, b- between um, deciding to use him for Techno Babylon and uh, actually getting around to making Techno, sorry, between originally making Techno Babylon in 2010 and deciding to use him for Techno Babylon, I also uh made a more cartoonishly style game called the Perfidious Petrol Station. Um Nancy and the Perfidious Petrol Station. Um and that went into a bundle of games with another of uh Ben's game, which was sold for charity, the whole bundle together. Um uh, and I think that's where discussion started about outsourcing art to him. I think. This was going on a decade ago. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, ugh, time uh, uh, I know right so 2010 was 10 years ago that's uh, crazy but, but yes yeah, so, so that um, so playing his games um, seeing that he was available to outsource art to I asked him if he'd be up for that and his response was to send me a rejig of the first scene of uh, the first Techno Babylon episode which was very impressive but I was um, I had meant to tell him that my plan was to build the 3D model build it as 3D models and then he'd paint over them but he'd already gone and built the scene gone and painted the scene already <laughs> oh wow so he was basically showing you yeah, this is pitching it to you this is what I can do <laughs> uh, he, he's a blooming machine in so many ways <laughs> I've heard from when Dave Gilbert speaks, you know, that uh, he's, he works very, very fast, very, very efficiently. That's what I've I heard. I don't think he pays Ben enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we've heard it publicly if Dave and Ben are uh, are listening. Don't know if they do or not, but you heard it here that he, Dave Gilbert does not pay <laughs> Ben. So that might be the second controversial statement. Uh, it's, it's free advertising controversy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely true. <laughs> no, I, I do love Ben's backgrounds and all of the you know the games that he's worked on at least you know, the you know the Blackwell series and Unavowed and of course Techno Babylon. I don't know if he's worked on uh, the other games that were published by Wajidai. Shard Light, um, he did the art but, for. Uh, oh, I love that as well. Uh, yes, he didn't I, do Golden Wake. Uh, that was Francisco's um, style. Um, I there's something in my brain telling me was one of the other not directly Dave games that uh, that Ben did as well, but I can't quite place it in my head. And he's also doing Nighthawks as well, which is yes, the the Richard the Corbett uh, the Corbett Cobbett. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, that looks really interesting as well. It looks really nice. I mean, I think every game that he's he's done looks really, really and good. You, you see the stuff he done um, in three D as well. I mean, he made the he made the transfer to three D so well. Hmm. 
Ooh, I'm not sure. As, as, as you know, all games in 3D oh, don't look good. So. It's a terrible shame when adventure games <laughs> pivot to 3D, isn't it? They're just pandering to this new technology. Absolutely. These Pentium 2s and these 3D FX cards, you know? Yeah, that's, uh, what's it, 20, 25 years ago that adventure games were first released in 3D? You know, Arguably older if you count, very if you count Alone in the Dark as an adventure game even longer. That's that's very true. Well, I'm sure we'll get on to that discussion. <laughs> um, so then you said you pitched it to Dave Gilbert. So how much of the game had you made? Did you make all of the game first, or did you make some um, of the game, and then you you pitched it to Dave? At so that I think point? I'd put together the first section of the game, which is essentially a remake of the original um, Freeware episode before. Uh, he said he liked it and uh, wanted me to provide a broader outline of what the entire game would be. Uh, so I spent a couple of days knocking that out, sent it over to him, um, and he gave the thumbs up and permission to use uh, Ben's artistic talents. At the time, I believe he was now working for Wajitai full-time. So uh, I got uh, Ben's talents for the Techno Babylon project, um, much as with Techno Babylon 2 as well. Uh, although in this case, um, uh, taking a slightly different approach with the development for this one. But the first one, um, we kind of then worked through the game step by step through the narrative rather than decide, rather than building it in the sense of all the narrative, then all the art. We just sort of building it set chapter by chapter. So I would put thing, put the machinery together and say, I need... Um, I need this character to pull a grate off a wall. I need him to stick his hand in a fish tank. And then, you know, the next day I'd find my Dropbox full of full of animation sprites. Um, but we also did it... Uh, so we weren't just using um, 2D art for the scenery. So because I like to have a great deal of control about where things go, and because... Um, my old DT teacher at school really hammered perspectives into my head. I built a lot of, the, I built most of the scenes in Technia Babylon in 3D using Blender, so they were all 3D models. I mean, somewhere on my hard drive, there's all but two of the scenes in Techno Babylon have 3D models on the go already. Uh, so I'd package those up, send them to Ben, and he would uh, paint over the end, paint over them to create the fantastic end results for the the scenes the really deep and atmospheric um his his he would add the atmosphere to it essentially my side of it was essentially just to work out where can people walk what will they walk behind what are they going to bump into sort of thing like yes so yeah yeah no that's uh interesting but um yeah so you've already been working on you know, with 3D on Techno Babylon one uh, to begin with, and then he'd paint over. Oh, I did not know that actually. I thought it was made fully with AGS. He's uh, made with so the 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 game is made with AGS. The so the backgrounds are all PNGs and sprites and things. But um, we would um, make a reference for the scenery using Blender. Okay, that's that's interesting. Well, I think. I can safely say that it worked, that the game looks really good, really nice. Uh, and 
So, and did, did you find, so you were able to work together with the different time difference then? Uh, I know you said that he, he left uh, some of the art in Dropbox the next day. Uh, were, you, did you, were you able to manage uh, working together with different time zones from Australia and the UK? Uh, yeah, okay. I think so. I have a feeling that um, he and I were both not keeping particularly conventional sleeping patterns at the time. <laughs> so you could be working at the same time exactly. anyway. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, I mean, we did have, to, we did have direct, direct discussion over plenty of things. Um, but... Um, I think many of the big sides of things, it would involve a zip, a zip file with text outlines of more detail about what's needed in a scene than just uh, sending a, a blend file over a PNG and saying paint over this. So we did have discussions, but as I say, we were, um, I have a feeling we were both awake in the middle of the night at both ends. <laughs> Well, that's typical. Well, I don't know typical game development uh, hours, or at least people who work in with computers, because I know some people who do, and they tell me that they're up at you know during the night working on coding on it's whatever. So, <laughs> then, <laughs> I try not to do. It. I used to do it a little bit myself, but I try not to. I try to say certain times like no, I can't watch a computer or look at a computer screen anymore. And again, it's you say it is addictive, especially if you're playing a game. And it's good. You want to know what happens next. But I was like, nope, I have to just turn off, just read a book, go to bed, do something different. But it's hard at times. It's, it's hard to be disciplined. And then, if, you know, factor in as well the American time zone with Dave Gilbert then as well. So uh, so how involved was, was Dave then? Did he give advice during the development then There was well? input uh, throughout the process. There were a couple of narrative changes to the game one of which I can bring up in the uh, special pa- uh, spoiler section later on. Okay. Look, um, look forward a few to of hearing them that. Were, I mean, it's good to get a second or third opinion on narrative because sometimes sometimes you're not a good judge of your own work, as it were. Um, so that was extremely useful. Um, changes in direction of plot here and there. Uh, not huge ones, but... Um, certainly worthwhile uh hearing somebody else's opinion on these things um there's a there's a director's commentary track on techno babylon with commentary from myself dave ben and nathan pennard who did the soundtrack um so i think the major points that dave had involved in the game he mentioned them during the commentary on those ones Okay, I don't know if I did listen to it. If I did, it was a few years ago when it first came out, because I usually do listen to the direct or to commentary on the Wajedi games, but um, because I really enjoy listening, uh, you know, to the input as well. So I have to go back and and listen to that. So, um, so yeah. So you uh, now you mentioned why you started working on this in 2010. So it took you five years, did it, to make and then release the game? Ish. Um, or so in, in, or... in that five years, I also made two <laughs> other games as well. Um, the Rail and the Perfidious Petrol Station. Um, but so Techno, so the issue I was having with Techno Babylon at the time, kind of like I'm having at the moment with Techno Babylon 2, is that I would get through part of it and then find I'd improved. And therefore what I'd made... The, the beginning of the project at that stage was absolutely ghastly in comparison to what I could then do it by the end of the section there. So I went back and redid it, and again, I'd improved by the time 
I got around to finishing it. So it was an endless cycle of rejigging, which was why in the end I decided, okay, never mind the art. Let somebody who is considerably better than me handle that side of things. And I will get on with, I mean, with the, the narrative programming side of that, because as long as it's functional, then nobody's going to notice whether it's leaking on the inside. Right. I mean, it's a trim. I mean, no, no doubt from any objective perspective, the code in Techno Babylon is a mess of spaghetti and the wrong ways of doing things. Because I was never officially taught how to do programming. So I've no doubt I've gotten so many things wrong and so many ways that you shouldn't do things. Um, I I think Janet Gilbert is probably the only person who's looked at um, the code of it. Um, and I'm amazed she hasn't um, like slapped me or anything <laughs> for crimes against <laughs> programming. Well, look, you released a game to, uh, you know, it's a really good critical reception and uh, they've asked you to make a second one. So you're doing Apparently. something right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd say maybe it's not wrong, just a different way of doing things. You know, that's what I say if I do things that with the podcast or anything else. And if it's not the standard way, I say, oh, no, it's just a different way of doing things. <laughs> um, oh, so, so then it was released in 20. 15 then so um again for for people maybe who haven't played it or who don't know much about it um what what can you tell us about because we spoke about the narrative a little bit what, what can you tell us about the setup of the game or the, the story you know introduction to uh to what we can expect with the story of the game uh so again i leave this up to you because i don't want to give any spoilers <laughs> yes, well the, but... broadly the plot follows two main threads one being an unemployed young woman addicted to the internet to a distant future descendant of the internet experience through the mind machine interface of virtual reality um who seems to be finding herself targeted for murder but she hasn't made any enemies beyond people she might have slagged off on the internet nobody's as far as she knows has grounds to want her dead or blow up her apartment so that's rather a big a rather pressing life concern for her at that stage. Meanwhile, um, <laughs> an agent of the city's all-seeing police state is being blackmailed with the lives of the unborn children of his long-dead wife to carry out acts of sabotage against the city and its people. Interesting. This is the yes. very beginning of the game. So the, the game is about uncovering that. why this has happened and, of course, how these two different characters' narratives are linked together. Right, so so we play, you mentioned uh, the character is Lata Sesame, who is addicted to the, the internet uh, in this timeline, and then the police officer is being uh, blackmailed is Charlie Regis, Regis yep. or Regis? Regis, yes. And uh, then there's another character, That's is right. there Max Lau? Yep, she, so for two of the sections... Now, three of the sections, you're Dr. Lau, who is uh, Dr. Regis's partner. This is uh, partway through the game when Dr. Regis has gone considerably more rogue. Dr. Lau is tasked with tracking him down and bringing him in. But, of course, she's split between her lot. She's she's younger. She's more, um, she's more in tune with what the ideal citizen of the city should be like. So she's having trouble resolving the conflict between, in her mind... Um, that she doesn't believe that Dr. Regis could have done this, but also, why would the city be wrong about this? 
yeah, there is there's certainly from what I remember as well that there's a lot going on in the, with the story, which which is good. And what I particularly like about you know sci-fi as well is that there's you know not just a story, but then it has uh, you know not not a message, but other kind of um, parts of the story, other kind of uh, big ideas, and kind of uh, similar to the world that we live in at the time. So you mentioned uh, the character Latsa Sesame, who is addicted to the internet or the the trance, as, as it's known then, and how then she, she's you know her her life is in danger, but she just slagged off people on the internet. So was that kind of like a commentary and maybe uh, people like online who are who are trolling others, or was it just that you came up with this idea? Um, it was more along. It was more an excuse to get virtual reality into the game. It started the. It began as an exercise in puzzle design because the it was going to be um, a situation of using the manipulation of files in computers and getting computers to fight each other to affect things in reality. So in the first section of the game, I think it's okay not to call this one a spoiler, your goal is to essentially break out of the apartment by turning the apartment systems against themselves, um, getting them to pitting them against each other so that essentially the antivirus takes down what's getting in your way. Yes, I remember it now. It's coming back to me. That was very interesting, actually. Uh, the very creative has you, you know, to, to get out of it. And then she has to find out basically, you know, what, who is trying to target her. And she has to, uh, I don't know if she has to go to, you know, some shady places to try and figure out who so her she's pro- up against. So her priority in life is to uh, get back to normality and reconnect to the trance. She, she doesn't care about anything else. She is utterly focused on that. And for her, it's not about morals. It's about what can I do to get back into the trance? Whereas the older people, Dr. Regis, Dr. Lau, they've got a bit more nuance to them. They weren't raised with their heads in the trance. They... They've got other priorities, but for her, it is everything. There is nothing else to her life. Right, yeah, so that's her main objective. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I really liked how that, because, you know, first of all, that's a sesame that she, mm. she's an addict, basically. And then you play you you play as this person who is who is addicted, in this case, to the trance, and that that's all she wants that this from what i remember at least this is kind of like a nuisance so people are killing me but i just want them to stop exactly. so get it, back into the trance where it's like what what's it, going it, on it, you know so uh, as the the character came as a result of the mechanism but uh the her her background grew around that um and also as a motivation for why she's doing these things but it also means that she's the ideal adventure protagonist because she is a complete sociopath, as it were. She doesn't care what other people think. She doesn't care that she's <laughs> nicking everything that's not nailed down in order to build weird machinery to grow biotechnological connections to get herself back into the virtual internet. She doesn't. It doesn't matter to her what other people will think about this because it's the completion of her goal. She is an adventure protagonist, after all. <laughs> <laughs> no that's interesting because that's you know one of the tropes of adventure games that you know characters they pick up anything and everything and they are as mentioned complete sociopaths a lot of times we've done some horrible things as adventure game you know adventure game characters um but in this mm-hmm. case it makes sense 
you know, why she goes around dudes. As you mentioned, she doesn't care what anybody else thinks. She just wants to get back to her normal and life. it's not she even an edgy teenager, I don't care what people think about me kind of way. No. <laughs> she literally just absolutely no regard for what other people might think about him. <laughs> this is the effect that the immersion in the trance has had on her. Despite her claims to it being the it, the immersive future of mankind, mm. the virtual paradise that we make with our own minds, but really, it's really ruined her in so many ways. Mm. No, but 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 it's interesting, you know, it's mentioned to play a character like that, that who really just doesn't care. That is actually not a bad person, but just that she's really down we, when we first meet her she's really down on her luck and then people are trying to kill her on top of that <laughs> and, um, and then the others as well uh, with uh, Charlie Re- Regis who finds himself blackmailed as well uh, how did you come up with the ideas for these characters and for you know for these plots for these characters so for Dr. Regis and Dr. Lau um, they came along as part of the 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 second episode of the game was going to, as when it was the freeware episodes it was it needed to be an expansion of the ideas and i was very big on things like deus ex cyberpunk exploration of cities and cultures and i wanted to explore the wider city beyond Lata's apartment um and um as as with many other kinds of fiction investigators are a good way to do this because they they have a lot more license to go around um being protagonists you know taking things investigating things getting into places talking to people it's part of their remit you know journalists are also it's what it's why investigators and journalists are characters and things so often all the time um but solving a mystery is a, a good overall goal for you know any small section of the so yeah the entire game was designed around small sections and solving a mystery that is a good objective for a small section as part of a big broad narrative so once again it was the functionality of the narrative writing the characters as it were um but um right i so, going into pretentious author mode again, Techno Babylon is kind of like, um, <laughs> rather than being outright cyberpunk, it's what some people call post-cyberpunk. Because cyberpunk is all about rebelling against the man and the system, whereas two of the three main characters of Techno Babylon are part of the system. They are agents of the city's all-seeing, all-knowing police state. Um, so, and Yes, it's... It- it's a very interesting mix that you have there. The two characters working for the for the system for the police state, and well, then the assassin is beginning. Exactly, <laughs> not that she's against it. That she she's she's just in this you know completely doesn't care at all about the, the, the only the, system, it, so. the only impact it has on her life is it it keeps her alive. It's a it's the kind of city state which provides for its people. There is sufficient technology to give everyone. Basic accommodation, basic food, and internet connection. And beyond that, they can go nuts, you know. The, the, the assumption is that people would want to make more of themselves and therefore use this as a stepping stone um, to find opportunities. But in her case, and with many other people in the city, they just 
they they find more opportunities within the trance. So they stay there. As, you know, as long as they're eating, they're right. somewhere they're not going to freeze to death. They can keep on going their own way. Yeah, I suppose this is like you mentioned in AI or in uh, if we play uh, the MMOs or anything that's where somebody else and that in these other places, in this case, the trance, she is somebody else and she has probably a better life in the trance than in her real life. So that's why she wants to stay there. That is pretty uh, much nail on the head. That... Um, she she doesn't want, she's not going to admit it, of course, as far, but um, I mean, in the trance, she is powerful. Mm. She is a creator. She can do what she likes, go where she likes, be who she wants to be, define herself in a way that just isn't possible in reality. A situation that many people would find today themselves as well you know it's they you know people say you do you can be what you want to be but really you know the opportunities are limited by so many factors but if you've got a world of pure thought and imagination it's literally just a matter of your own what 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 your mind is capable of and for her it's so much easier to do it that way Right, yeah. So I do find it interesting how, you know, as we mentioned, she was an addict and how, you know, she was trying, then she gets in the real world and how she investigates then who's after her. And slowly, from what I remember, she then, uh, you know, becomes more, I don't know if the right word, useful to society. She discovers herself more. She goes along that, you know, she's not useless, that she has the use uh, in, in this world as well. So, you know, I re- really enjoyed that from what I remember playing. Now, again, correct me if I'm wrong about any of this, because it has been a few years mm. since I've played it. <laughs> and, um, and then now I don't know, I might be wrong about this as well, about the character of Max Lau, but I heard afterwards, um, I don't know if you do want to talk about this, but it's, is she a transgender character in the game as well? Or am I uh, you're, wrong? You're not wrong on that one. Dr. Lau was born male, um, in the context of the story, it's the kind of thing that um, it comes up. You have to speak to Doctor Lau about it because it's the kind of thing in the game. This game is um, sixty odd years, sixty-seven years in the future from the moment, and it's the stage where the technology of transitioning has gotten so far that it's done at the genetic level um, to the extent where it, so. Much like Latha's goal of defining herself within the trance, Dr. Lau has gone to, uh, has taken steps to define herself in reality. So it's the kind right. of thing, um, I mentioned this a few years ago to other people, but, um, I wanted it to be like, um, like Star Trek in the 60s was in discussions of race, like, uh, Lieutenant Tohura in Star Trek. She's on the bridge. She, in you know, mm. TV in the sixties, black woman in a command position. There, that was big. But when I was growing up with Star Trek, it sort of, it didn't click to me that this how ground shiftingly huge this was a few decades earlier. Um, so again, with Doctor Lau's case, two thousand eighties. It's a case of, okay, this is a thing, and it's so normal it's mundane by that stage right yeah because i i mean when i played the game i have to admit i didn't notice that 
certainly in this game and story, it, it wasn't like a big thing that you mentioned that you we find out if you speak uh, to the character. But I think that that's great as well. That that first of all for representation, but also that you don't make a big thing about it. That this is accepted in the year twenty eighty seven. I have when a feeling game that Aaron, we, we did get we did go for we did, we got input from the trans community on the matter for how to handle it in a sensible way that right. would, I, that would come off not being patronizing or offensive but um in the end the best result was to make it a case of um you know when when she tells dr regis about it his interest in it solely comes from professional curiosity in terms of how the process was done because of his background in genetics as well but um the it's the kind of thing that um it's a feature of her you know it's part it's part of her background um but as with um as a the gene roddenberry approach to the future it's it's an it's a you know, and um Chekhov on the bridge in star trek as well again by the time i was a kid why would it have been weird that russians were working in a multinational crew 60s the russians working with americans yeah right. so but yeah i mean crazy gene roddenberry was was bonkers in so many ways but this was not one of them this was i think um one of the things he did absolutely right when it came to science fiction stories, um, stories of the future and, and of positive change as well. Yes, no, de- definitely. So, um, no, it was, you know, it's Star Trek, you know, as, as you just said, you know, it was a great inspiration as well as show, you know, I think ahead of its time. And, and I think we can probably say the Techno Babylon in this case and in other ways as well, because this was, released back in 2015 um but no de- definitely think uh, it's, it's great as well that as i meant for representation but that it's uh you know that it's it's accepted as you mentioned by the other character charlie regis professional curiosity um so and then i mean all the characters as, as i mentioned especially the three main ones that they're very different as well they feel like fully rounded individuals that's uh you know they're they're not just two-dimensional uh, characters but as well what i liked is the whole that it felt like a bigger world as well and that we have this the it's run by ai central powers the cell police force as well um what can you tell us about them in the game the uh yeah well i'll let i'll let you talk about it. i don't want to give any um, uh, so by this stage of the future a lot more of management of cities all over the world is being handled by AIs for the purposes of efficiency, cut down on corruption, monitoring the sheer volume of data traffic coming in and out. Um, But in the case of the city of Newton, where the game is set, um, they have a particularly specialized experimental AI known as Central that runs the centralized government, as it were. I mean, it handles the day-to-day operations of it. There's still a elected council who um, who are the, the democratic involvement in it, but Central is the one giving the orders to the boots on the ground. And it's... So the, the, the civil service in the city is not so much a hierarchy. Everyone reports to Central. Everyone from the janitors who clean the city streets to the administrators who are in charge of organizing diplomatic connections with other nations they all report to central um it's a very horizontal hierarchy as it were 
<laughs> so so my say communism. <laughs> um, so everyone kind of as you mentioned is you know the report the report to to central and where do you get that particular idea from as well if you don't mind me asking. I know they're not. They mightn't be like the most original well, yeah, question. Well, but I'm curious. Specifically, it's the kind of thing. That, yeah, that um, really about the, like, the hierarchy of things. But it sort of it struck me as another way for Doctor Regis's personality to come off as not quite fitting into how the city does things because he comes from a more conservative, old-fashioned background, and he treats younger agents, newer agents as subordinates, people he can boss around, people who ought to respect him for his age, his seniority, his position. And while on a subconscious level, some of them would, uh, Dr. Lau wants to learn from him, they are, from an organizational standpoint, at absolute parity. But this isn't something he's been able to get into his head in terms of the way things are done. And much like Latha, he doesn't care. No matter how many times Central complains to him about it, uh, he also hates Central's guts as well, for reasons that um, come across later in the story. But um, he commits his own acts of petty vandalism and sabotage against it. Yes, I, I remember. Now, so that's what, another thing I liked about the character, that he was the older character and more, as you mentioned, conservative character, thinking that this is how things should be done You know, back in my day. But he felt kind of realistic as well. Um, but yeah, no, I really liked uh, how you used that and how, you know, with this uh, AI overlooking the city. And it kind of reminds me of, uh, of a new game. Don't know if you've played it. Uh, it's not a Wajidai game, although Dave Gilbert did work on the voice acting. Whispers of a Machine, which there are 30 some similarities I can see, especially with the use of AI I've not in the game. I played it myself. Yet, that game. But another link between the two projects was that um, Ivan Yulinov did the portrait art on the characters for both games as well. Mm. He, oh, really? Oh, I didn't another, know that. He, no, he's another one of these looks assets similar, I mean, who is really, uh, really, I think he's not being paid enough for him. But don't, don't let him hear that. I'm getting such good deals <laughs> on the portrait art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should be their agents. <laughs> And I hope you're getting paid um, I, enough I get to paid work on these games. The game, but... So as long as people are talking about it, then I mean, I really, I really need to another game. <laughs> yeah, because what five yeah, years since the Tech of Babylon, one, so you know it's quite cushy. But... <laughs> uh, that's good. That's that's good. So hey, so you can take your time then. <laughs> Yeah, we we want uh, another game from you know from you, so you know get back to work <laughs> after this interview. <laughs> um, no, well we'll we'll see, but uh, no, so that's a little bit about the story. I'm sure we'll speak more about it, so their uh, motivations and that, what happens at the end in the spoiler special for the Patreon uh, uh, subscribers. But for now, then, so then in terms of puzzles, uh, now you mentioned in the first puzzle. But it kind of showed it introduced kind of the world as well to turn the two AI machines against each other to help Latza escape from her apartment. Uh, what what other type of puzzles can we expect in this um, game? I like to, as you say, they help to explore the world, um, give, a, give an illustration of what the world is like because it's one thing to have a broad outline of get out of this room. But you have to add detail. It's like writing a murder mystery. You kind of start from the end and work backwards. 
So, you know, get out of room. Okay, find key. All right. What are keys like in this environment? You know, what complications are going to exist to stop character getting key? And you kind of build on those concepts. Um, and from those, a lot of the fun for it for me in writing this is coming up with a consistent world that enables these obstacles um, without seeming hammy or um, artificial or too artificial. Um, so, um, although in some cases the narrative did um, do more to bring about a puzzle rather than the other way around. Like in the second part of the game, there's an exercise which involves switching around bits of an AI's brain, its personality and its memory, really throwing into confusion its self-identity of what it thinks it is and does, which I then built the puzzle around rather than the other way around with most of the exercises in the game. Right, yeah, I think I remember vaguely. I need to re replay this game because I remember the puzzles were uh, were interesting. And then, uh, so, and then where do you fall on, do you think that puzzles should be more challenging, more difficult, or do you think that the focus should be on narrative, or should there be maybe try to be a balance between the two? And so just wondering, you know, where you see puzzles in adventure games. Or um, compared to narrative. They are both important, but I think there is such a thing as too much puzzle or too much narrative. Um, for example, I think a lot of Telltale games kind of skirt the limit of interactive movie rather than being something to um, rather <laughs> right. than being something that challenges people in terms of thought. Whereas games like, for example, The Dig or maybe um, Mist. That is too much puzzle, in my opinion. Um, for me, what I want is puzzles that feel like they belong in the world and that have logical solutions that you could reasonably expect to find in such an environment. Um, but in gameplay terms, their purpose is to give people a feeling of satisfaction, of accomplishment, of, aha, I'm so clever, when they managed to figure something out. It doesn't need to be big necessarily, but it needs to make them clever and feel clever. It needs they need to have spotted a pattern. They need this is their reward, the rush of endorphins when they when it clicks in their head. And for the most part, I think we managed to nail it. There's a couple of puzzles here and there that a few people sometimes have trouble with. But um and afterwards, after I explained, they're like, oh, yeah. But for the most part, I think we we did all right with the, the difficulty scale on those ones. I use my mother as a test platform for these ones. If, if she can't do it, then I have to go back and think <laughs> about it. But um, uh, as, as you mentioned earlier with Face of Atlantis, um, I did get some objection to puzzles involving... Arcadey exercises. Uh, there, there used to be a CPR mini game in one section of the game that was dropped at Dave's suggestion. Um, there's one bit that's still left over in which the player has to sneak behind um, pieces of equipment on a factory conveyor belt in order to avoid being spotted. And in that one, I opted for making it so that every time the player fails and is shot, 
the exercise resets and the the hiding zone behind each object gets bigger and bigger until the point where after you've missed a bit after you've failed about four or five times it's so big you could literally just walk across the conveyor belt and he wouldn't do anything but because the player is trying to hide behind the object they think they've succeeded mm. so, um and i think right the yeah. last one of those things a reflex puzzle was a, a kind of virtual reality ball game which um originally it was designed to be impossible to complete so that the player would have to go outside and find an alternative way to ruin the guy in virtual reality's game you know sabotage him but we in the end we made it so that it was very difficult but feasible you can get a steam achievement if you do it on um if you play on steam if you actually manage to complete it that way oh interesting no, because I, you know, I like how they're, you know, mentioning that they're different different ways because, uh, you know, the way I see it now, I know it's it's hard to make them all like this, but for, for what I look for in puzzles is are they logical? Do they make sense? Now, for example, the more serious kind of games, you know, like Techno Babylon, for example, even if they're more challenging or difficult, if they have some logic or if they make more sense then I don't usually mind them. But then, you know, we all know examples of puzzles in mainly serious games that don't really make sense. Uh, you know, there is a puzzle in the game. I won't mention the name of the game, but where you play as a police officer, as I think he works for Scotland Yard, and for some reason he doesn't have money. So he needs to get a homeless person drunk. And then I think to get the, so he can steal a change from the homeless person. <laughs> And, and this is a serious game. So things like that would take me out of a game. There's nothing like that I remember in Techno Babylon. But another thing that I saw, it's with another game that I play. It's a mobile game that was released in 2019. I think it's beyond this side. That they, they have some kind of logic puzzles, you know, like they have some, um, you know, like a slider puzzle and that. But what they did was to give you a 10-minute time limit. But then if you don't manage to solve the puzzle in that, within that 10 minute time frame, you then have the option of skipping ahead. So uh, what, what's your opinion on this your, or on hints in games as well? Do you think that they can help players or do you think that they shouldn't be in games in your opinion? Mm. Or If I were making a game, these? I probably wouldn't include something quite so um, overt. Um, I, I like the help mm. that the game gives to be subtle like the um the player not knowing that the the safe area behind the objects on the conveyor belt is getting bigger um i right i like it yes. in things like so the recent doom uh a couple of years ago that um has an adaptive difficulty system if you're failing a lot enemies will stop moving they will slow down they will miss a lot but it does it in a nice seamless way so that Things still go on fast and frantically, and you don't really notice it. Um, so, right. But conversely, um, Metal Gear Solid Five. Um, if you fail the mission a couple of times, you get uh, the game asks you if you want to have the uh, chicken hat, which makes enemies not being able to see you and gives you infinite ammo. <laughs> um, which is, it's. I mean, it will help you complete the mission. Um, but I, 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 I'm, I'm a, on the one hand, I'm of the opinion that once somebody's bought a game, they can do what they like. If they're going to cheat, they can go and read a walkthrough online. That's fine. I don't care. They give me their money, haven't they? 
But um, personally, <laughs> the way I design things, I, I, so back in the 90s, it would be the case of they would sometimes make the puzzles deliberately obtuse so that you had to call their premium rate phone number for hints on how to do that. That is not a viable business model anymore these days. So I'm more about uh, aiding accessibility rather than just outright giving the answer away. Um, so, for example, nope, I've forgotten the example I was going to give. But, <laughs> but oh, sorry, I, I, I have actually thought of something. Oh, don't worry, so, I know, I know um, what you mean. <laughs> so one of the criticisms of adventure games back in the day uh, even some people mentioned a few times about Technobabylon, is the issue of pixel hunting, when the thing you're looking for in the room is hard mm. to find because it's not very big, or you may not notice it. Um, the To start with, the way we want, I want, decided to make it easier was to have it so that um, text would pop up when you moved mouse over objects in the room. That way it wasn't like Sierra games, we just had to try and piece, you know, click everywhere in the room to find things out. But late in the latest projects I'm working on, I've opted for a like a hotspot pointer system. You press the scanner, the character does a wave of scanning all over the room and markers showing the hotspots pop up. I think that fits into the narrative, you know, future, police, scanners, that kind of thing. Scientific tools, that works. Um, and it's just to show where things are. I'm not hiding them but i mean the goal is not to hide them per se but this is an accessibility issue some people might not be able to see them that's fair i'll let them out but i think to me just solving the puzzle after 10 minutes it's not a design choice i would make now this was a mobile ge mobile game so it was shorter than say techno babylon so it um, so it was, shall we say, easier, I think, and you're playing, shall we say, on the bus. So I, I guess the, the objective was to make it, you know, so you could play this game quicker. So it took about an hour to play overall. So, but, I but think, yeah. Um, I remember I played a couple of months ago, Deus Ex Go. Um, and it's a, it's a game about, um, I'm basically, it's a puzzle game at heart, but it's about, um, stealth, hiding, switches, hacking, that sort of thing. And you could use automatic solves, but you have a finite number of them. That struck me as a better approach than just timing out. Um, so there's 100 levels, and you had five automatic solves. And that, to me, seemed like a better way to go, because it made you think about whether you really wanted to use it or not. Right, yes, so you have to choose then do you use it or do you wait for later on okay do i want to put a little more effort in do, you know do i really want to spend this this solve so to me i think that seems it's a mobile game as well so i can see the utility in keeping levels short that makes sense for mobile games certainly sure yeah that's so i suppose for pc it might be a bit longer but it's interesting that there are different ways of you know going about it because i know some developers who don't want um, you know people to go and use walkthroughs when they're playing the game because that would you know lose the immersion for the game uh, for the game players. But then others want a challenge. You know, want players to be challenged as well. 
So, but I, I like what you're saying about in your next game that you're using a police scanner to find objects because that helps the game player, but it also makes sense for the narrative that it's something that they would use. It's not just pressing a button on the keyboard and the objects magically appear or the, exactly. the magically, they magically light up. Exactly, light up, really but there is a reason the for it as part of the story. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah, but it makes sense. Right. No, but I really like that. It makes sense narratively. And, and that's what I look for in puzzles. Now, I'm not saying I have the answers. I um, mean, you know, if I made an adventure you game, it would probably suck. But, but at least, yeah, exactly. No, I have thought about it. We'll, you know, we'll see in the future. What's uh, if I can find more time or magic, magically have more time, more than 24 hours in a day. Um, but I, I like that, that aspect. So, um, so yeah, no, that's, uh, that's you know very interesting with the puzzle because certainly it's in Techno Babylon you know there it's a challenge but I don't remember it being you know insanely difficult like you mentioned to dig or certainly missed you know there was and there's no point where I thought you know the character would never do that so um, and then before we talk about um, uh, Techno Babylon two which I'm sure people listening would be interested in knowing a little bit about whatever you can say. Um, the, the voice acting, I think the voice acting in all Wajidai games and all Dave Gilbert games are of a very high quality, I can safely say. Uh, did, did you, how much input did you have in the voice acting? How much um, did you work with the voice actors in the game? My, the, my direct was it side of Dave? things was mainly limited to uh, like a, a, a glossary of future terms and how things would be pronounced. Um, so some odd terms would be, you know, future slang, that kind of thing. The context, one would say certain words. Um, but um, I did make a few... Oh, I did also... I, I vet, uh, vetted the choices of um, actors who were auditioning for roles. And I have to say, I regret that we couldn't... I mean, the, the chap who did the voice in the end did a great job with the character all through, but I, I do still partly regret that we didn't find a... Uh, an actor with a, a a Texas accent for Doctor Regis um, that bothered me a little bit. Still, mm. um, it's one of the things we get comments about. Still, <laughs> um, and also that we didn't find anyone really? with a Zimbabwean <laughs> accent for one of the other characters later in the game. I'm less surprised that they couldn't find that, but um, like, again, I think the end result came out quite well with her. Um, I mean, it, to me, I'm sort of I roll my eyes a bit when this game in a multinational community, all the actors sound like they're from New York. <laughs> but um, they, they, as, I'm kidding; they did a fantastic job. And um, one of the one of the regulars of Wajdai Games, uh, Abe Goldfarb, is in like everything. The character he voiced in this game, mm. um, I said I wanted him to sound like. Uh, Kenneth Williams, who, if people don't know, he's a British comedian in the 60s. He was in the uh, Carry On movies. And Abe knew exactly what I meant when I said Kenneth Williams. So, he, so, so do you want the posh Kenneth Williams or the East London Kenneth Williams? <laughs> and he absolutely nailed it. <laughs> he was eerie. But, um, it, wow. Absolutely. Uh, Abe is a fan. Fantastic actor, um, but yeah, the, the 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 cast we ended up with in Techno Babylon, they did a fantastic job. Um, as did the um, hundreds of extras for telephone voices in the end as well. Oh, I have to check. That. I don't remember that part, but yeah, from what I remember, the voice acting to me, 
but as with every other Wajidai game, was of a very high quality. Um, even if they did all sound from New York. <laughs> but uh, but where, where was the game set? Again, you mentioned where they would think it's a fictional city, but... So initially in my plan was to keep the location a bit vague, of... as a, you know, the city could be anywhere, but but um, things sort of okay. ended up being that I had to settle on locations just for various reasons. So the city of Newton is on the east coast of Africa in Kenya, in a place of what's called today, what's today called Lamu County. Um, so I, I was born in Kenya. I'm from the neighborhood, but it's um, the key point of it is that I wanted was the city is on it's a on the equator because it's a big part of, because space launch is a big part of the industry around there in the future. Um, so an equatorial position is a benefit when you're launching into space because the spin of the Earth on the equator is faster, meaning you have to put less oomph into your launches, wow. <laughs> making launches cheaper. Oh, I definitely have um, to replay this game. <laughs> so, the, I mean, in practical terms, um, most of what happens in the game is that people say that when they get really high up, they can see Mombasa from here, because Mombasa's down the coast from Lamu. Uh, the, the issues of where the game, where the city is are explored further in the sequel, but um, in Techno Babylon... Broadly, it's a case of it's a new city like Dubai or Abu Dhabi, uh, Brasilia, the kinds of things that were built within living memory. Modernist, lots of concrete, lots of glass, designed very scientifically. Not necessarily, not not sort of evolved over centuries like many of the world's largest cities did, but planned and laid down with an organizational framework in mind. Whether that's a good thing or not is debatable, but um, it's, you know, it's uh, an example of technocracy in the no, city. No, I definitely need to re- replay it now because, um, you know, I'm always interested in games with an African setting. And so I, I, I definitely have to replay it because I'm not sure if I remember that, that I knew back then if it was uh, in, in uh, Kenya, but... Um, yeah, I don't know if that says more about me that I'm just not observant. But, <laughs> but um, no, it, interesting. And then finally about this game, then the the sound. Now, we've mentioned about the art with Ben Chandler and then the music. You mentioned that was somebody who did the music. I forget the name that you mentioned. Uh, Nathan, Nathan Pennard. Nathan Pennard, yes. And uh, how did you work with Nathan to get the music? Uh, did you give him... Uh, tell him exactly you know what you wanted and then let him work or how did you work how did you collaborate with him so nathan once again fantastic musician abs the, the soundtrack is one of the the bits i'm really happy with the game about um he he's a talented musician and um a lot of our discussion involved themes and moods for what has seen involved, but also cultural touchstones. I said here and there, you know, um, you know, this bit. I was thinking, kind of Blade Runner, Vangelis sort of thing, um, or this bit. I feel like synthesizers. Um, but um, he did a lot of. Um, he came up with a lot of ideas for sound and music on his own, like the uh, soundtrack in the restaurant being uh, Beethoven playing in the background. Um, also because it's open, you know, it's public domain, so that's even better. But um, one of the funniest bits we uh, that was um, that came out of the music development in that game was 
one part of the the game involves a really, as I mentioned earlier, far, like a fast-paced um, ball game, and I wanted something that sounded like it was um, actiony, fast tempo, um, the kind of thing you get for Final Fantasy battle music, for example. And there was a lot of back and forth um, revisions over this before we got something that sounded exactly right, because I think his scope he was aiming rather. Um, epic rather than action-packed for it, but the end result, I still use it as a ringtone on my phone. It's <laughs> so you yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. It, it, it completely nailed exactly the tone we were going for in the end. So, um, the importance of discussing with the people you're working with to get exactly what you're going for, it's worth it. You keep going, and eventually you will hit. With enough, dis- you know, discussion, you'll you you will understand each other enough to get what the other person is cool. talking about. I remember the the sound was was good, so I'll, I'll have to again I'll definitely to replay this game, certainly before Techno Babylon Two comes out. But um, but yeah, no, definitely. So it's great to hear that uh, you know. So he he got what what you were going for. So you got the sound that, that right that what you wanted mm. well i think that's all about techno babylon that's non-spoilery so we will be doing um you know talking about this game with the ending now in spoiler for patreon but this don't worry no spoilers here um but first before we talk about techno babylon 2 where can people buy techno babylon well, at the moment, it's available on Steam. It's on good old games. It's also available on iOS, so for, for iPhone, iPads. And I, uh, w- one of my side projects I'm working on is rebuilding the game in Unity. So my long-term goal is to have it functional on Switch and PS4, 5, Xbox, Android, eventually. That's, as I say, it's a side project for when I'm sick of Tokyo Babylon 2 or if I need re-inspiration i just um plug a few more things into the unity rebuild of interesting yeah because a lot of people ask uh can we get this game on switch can i get this game on switch or consoles so hopefully in the future uh, it will be available there Um, i also know that wadjet i are working on yes they've got a switch dev kit and are looking into the process of converting yes i believe that they're there were issues or there are difficulties in getting AGS games onto consoles, but I think they're finding uh, ways around that. Uh, they're looking into it from last I heard. Um, so hopefully pretty soon it can be on there. So at the moment it's available on iPad and iOS you mentioned as well. Yes. Um, touchscreen interface and everything. Uh, Janet did a great job converting that for the Apple system, I have absolutely, I have absolutely no truck with Apple um, operating systems. Machine. Not since the days of um, Acorns and school Macintoshes do I, did I've I used a Mac. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she she handled all that. No, I've heard at least from Dave and from other people that she she's a genius at getting things on uh, iOS and uh, iPad as well. So you're in good hands there. Mm. Um, well, well, now I, as I said, I played it before when it was back in 2015, and I loved it. But don't just uh, take my word. I'm going through the Steam reviews, which I'm sure you must love reading yourself as a developer. Steam reviews, but all I see are thumbs up, thumbs up, thumbs up. And there is one person here I see who said this game is brilliant. Buy it seriously. They got everything right about this game. 
And he says, I'm not usually someone who actually finishes a game, but this one I did. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he finished it, or they finished it. And then at the end they say, uh, well, this might just be one, if not the best games I've played a couple of years. And please let there be a sequel. So I think that uh, leads us right on to the next topic. Because about, uh, was it last year or a couple of months ago that you announced, or Dave Gilbert announced, that you were working on Techno Babylon 2. Um, so first, what is... Uh, are you able to give us an update on the status of the game? Because Dave Gilbert mentioned at Adventure X in 2019 that this game was not necessarily on hiatus, but that you were, um, you know, that you didn't have an exact release date that you were working on when you could. So do you have an update on the status of the game? So last year was unfortunately full of a few health issues in and out of hospital here and there. So I'm very sorry to hear that. Uh, derailed development a little bit, um, and in but but yes, development has has been going on. Um, I think the last screenshots that came out from the game were probably from a build from about last April or May, I think. Um, but I think the end result is probably going to be fairly different to what is in those pictures. So we've been taking into account what people are saying about these test versions. I've been running secret tests on the side but um because i've been working at a reduced pace i've kind of been doing it on my own rather than um bringing ben in. so ben's been focused on um nighthawks um the art of things and also i believe dave's working on another new project himself so at the moment it's me getting on with it doing it in what they call white box style so um it's when it's, everything is really simple shapes, um, placeholders everywhere, and unlike last time around, where it was a case of building art as the game was being built, this time I've opted for um, getting the game cracked through, and then we'll work on making it look nice. There are a few systems that have even changed since, um, even since Dave last had a go of the of the build um i'm 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 quite paranoid about it at the moment because i I was really really unhappy with the direction it was going in it was not enjoyable as it stood it felt to me like a rehash of ideas from the first game that it wasn't fun i mean there was lots lots of exposition and I mean, once again, Ben, absolutely fantastic job with the visuals. He he knows what he's doing, even in 3D. When it you know he, he picked he picked up so many of the concepts, and the game came out looking gorgeous. But putting a game, building a game in 3D like that is it's a different kettle of fish to designing it in 2D. So, for example, in 2D games, when you're building scenes, you kind of think of them like theater sets there's left there's right there's back there's um you know scene to scene changes but when you're building it in 3d like a telltale game you kind of have to start thinking of it like a television show and you have to start thinking in terms of rules of where can cameras go where do lights need to be and it adds layers upon layers of confusion and complication um and there were a few issues to do with source control as well um 
sharing the project on several different computers kept causing breakages. So eventually I just sort of said, look, I'll just deal with it on my end and it'll get done eventually. There will be Technobabylon 2. It may not exactly be the same as it was last time anybody saw it, but it will get there in the end. And at the moment, half of the cast of Taken Babylon 2 are actually placeholder models I've borrowed from games like Final Fantasy VIII and Fear <laughs> Effect. Well, so at least you're working on it anyway. First of all, I think it's important to say that I hope you're feeling better. I hope you're doing better. You know, the first thing is our health. Um, that is the first thing. So I hope you're doing okay. Um, but it, it's, it's good to hear as well that you are still working on it at least. And that at least you you are able to... Uh, see that there were issues when you were working on it, and it sounds like you were able to resolve them as you go along, that you're able to change things around uh, to make it uh, better. Now, you mentioned as well that the game might look different to when first screenshots came out, because it's uh, it's in 3D, we're moving from 2D to 3D, and we mentioned at the very beginning of the interview um, some of the reaction that people might have of um, you know game, adventure games, particular in 3D. Again, you mentioned as well talking about how you have to think differently with the 2D and 3D. Uh, what what is your um, I suppose opinion of working with 3D now? What advantages can you see uh, working in in 3D compared to 2D? Or do you have any preference working in either either way yourself? I love 3D. I'm better in working 3D but then in 2D um i think uh, it's um it feels more straightforward and makes more sense to me in my head um the the issue the main issue that i was having with 3D is when it comes down to choreography like uh, actors behaving themselves and the positioning of cameras and such but making a game in 3D feel like a game play like a game and work that makes sense to me. I think working with Half-Life initially and Half-Life 2, that was a good foundation in a lot of the principles of things like setting up a level for way for accessibility and uh, baking lights into scenes and building props, um, recycling assets, you know, whereas 2D, for example, if you want a room full of tables, you have to draw each individual table. 3D, you build one table, copy-paste it hundreds of times. I mean, I can, so now, you've e- got, got to find a plot reason for why there's room with hundreds of tables, but <laughs> it's easier to execute in that Interesting. sense. Interesting. So, Andy, you have experience working on 3D as well, with, you mentioned with Half-Life and other games as well. Yep, I did also put out, um, a couple of years ago, an experimental game called Starlag Zero. Uh, it was a 3D adventure game. Um, I put that up on Game Jolt. So if anyone okay. wants to see what my 3D work three years ago looked like, uh, it's about an RAF airman trying to escape from an unmanned POW camp in the Second World War. Wow, that sounds really interesting. That, that uh, You made that a couple of years ago. Yeah, that was the, the first um, 3D slash Unity game I finished uh, putting together. And much like with my early AGS works, now I sort of cringe when I realise how many things I got wrong behind the scenes on it. Um, but... Um, it we probably wouldn't notice, though. Exactly. You know, most players. I mean, most players wouldn't notice. Most people wouldn't notice unless they took the game to pieces in code or realized what it was that I'd done wrong. But um, now I sort of think, oh nuts! It's extraordinarily inefficient because, for example, 
um, in half the scenes, the lighting is all done in real time. So it's such an enormous drain on computers where it doesn't need to be. But it's such a simple style game that um, that the drain isn't really noticeable on most systems. Okay, well, I don't think... Um, yeah, I don't think I would have noticed that anyway, and I'm pretty sure that 99.999% of the people playing it wouldn't notice either. Exactly, none of the testers so, picked up on it either, so that's you know, a good sign. Okay, so but but it's amazing how things that we see as well that we think are maybe bigger issues and other people just don't pick up on, so... But that's on, digital, so that's on Game Jolt, is it? Yes, Starlight and, Zero. Starlight Zero, okay, I'll put, include a link to that on the show notes as well, and I'll have to try it out then as well um so yeah is there i know keeping you a, lo- a long time is is there anything else about uh techno babylon 2 that you are able to share either about the gameplay or um i d- don't know if i if you want to review anything with the, the narrative or the or the story at this early stage uh, but is there anything else that you want to mention about techno babylon 2 that you want people to know about or um, well one of the things i opted for doing uh because I, now i can with unity um, is I wanted to make it considerably more obvious the a more obviously different style between reality and the cyberspace of the trance. Um, so back when back in two thousand and ten, one of my ideas was to make things in reality two D and things in the trance three D because there was a three D three D plugin for AGS that was allowing for really simple Gorad shaped Gorad shaded. 3Ds and shapes and things. It looked really 90s cyber, like hackers or Tron kind of thing. But um, uh, so w- w- what I settled for in Techno Babylon in the end was um, the resolution in the trance is doubled at 640 by 480, whereas the real world is 320 by 200. Oh, interesting. So we can clearly see the difference then. Between mm. the two worlds, between the trance world and the real world. But with um, with the sequel, um, something I've done since um, since I last showed it to anybody, really, is really upped the difference between the detail and the post-processing and how the trance looks compared to reality. So reality is grey, it's low resolution, it's not very you know not very detailed. But the trance, it's bright colours, it's bloom, it's lens flare, it's um, emissions and normals and bump maps and all kinds of shiny effects. Right, okay. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing that. And then, now I know you mentioned that I think probably a minority of people, some people that, um, you know, they might have, you know, concerns with... The game in 3D. Now, you mentioned that the game looks different than when the first screenshots came out and you're making changes to the game. So um, so I'd imagine that, you know, people, that they should wait and see more for a finished project. Yeah, I mean, the, the big <laughs> response is just be patient. What they're seeing isn't the end result. So, right. I mean, there's the whole you know, books, covers, sort of thing. It, right. But, I mean, it, it, it kind of feels overworn for me to keep saying it, so I'll just let them play it. Let them see it when it's finished. Um, I I think a lot of people who are concerned about the, you know, the knee-jerk reaction of adventure games and 3D, they're thinking Monkey Island, they're thinking <laughs> when Broken Sword turned 3D as well. That was... But that was when... 
3D as a concept was experimental. That was when you did, they didn't know what to do with 3D, so they tried new things, which is fair enough. And 20 years later, I think it's safe to say that we have a better understanding of the dynamics of 3D and how it can be successfully applied. I mean, Telltale, they made so many games in 3D that aren't worse for Nobody the sake of anything. simply being in 3D. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think... Uh, so. What you're saying is that you know what you're doing. That's it. I, well, I think I know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, um, what I'm saying is that it's not 2000 anymore, and that right. people there have been a lot of. I mean, there has been trial and error when it comes to 3D in games, and fortunately, I think a lot of the error has been done by people before me. So I can I can yes. learn from that. Yes. No, but also I think with these games that people mention, you know, Escape from Monkey Island, Broken Sword, and Gabriel Knight 3 and others, I think uh, it's, this was the beginning of, you know, 3D and adventure games, as you mentioned, is experimental. And I think as well, a lot of these games, from what I've heard from developers, is that they were, I think, maybe not forced, but they, yeah, publishers kind of forced them to go 3D. They didn't really want to go 3D, but that was the market kind of at the time. But in your case, you're going 3D because you want to go 3D. No one's telling you that you have to go 3D or else we won't publish your game, which is what there was back like, 20 years ago, I believe. Exactly. In my case, I'm going 3D because I prefer working in 3D. I work better in 3D on my own, and I can do so much more in 3D. Uh, 3, 3, 3D for me is an opportunity, whereas um, the way I've been doing it before is... Uh, is I mean... Partly it was the limitation of AGS. If AGS could do 3D, I probably would have started making games in 3D 10 years ago. But Unity was the way I went for that. And the Adventure Creator plugin for Unity, I would recommend it to everyone, especially if you've got a background in AGS. It basically enables you to carry a lot of what you've learned in AGS through into Unity and acts as a good um, stepping stone for getting into other aspects of building things in Unity. Interesting. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, other adventure game developers can pick up on your advice. <laughs> and and then the final thing I'll say about uh, those games in 3D as well, that people had issues with them. What I found when I played some of those games is that the issues that at least I had with some of those games wasn't really just with the graphics, but it was with the gameplay as well, with the game kind of as a whole, <laughs> that they felt kind of rushed, some of them. So I think all of these things are things we should take into account. Um, you know, before we have knee-jerk reactions. So, uh, but no, I'm looking forward to Techno Babylon 2 anyway. And so is, uh, I don't know if you can say much about the story or the narrative. Do do we have like, similar characters, the same characters from before, or would that be a spoiler? Or, um... <laughs> or would you want to move on? <laughs> I'll make no comment at this stage. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to wait. Oh, so close. There's, a pro- there's probably about, Two people in the world in total other than me who know the exact situation at the moment. Um, so, I'm... so we'll have to track them down. And... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm prepared to wait anyway. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do with Techno Babylon 2. And um, now before we get to the spoiler section for the Patreon, um, where can people find you? Do you have any social media presence? Um Mostly on Twitter, that's where I show things that I'm working on and what I'm doing. Um, but, I mean, I think I've technically got a website still, but there's nothing on it beyond a um, homepage under construction thing. I just use that for email. 
podcast these days. Um, and Game Jolt as well is where I put up a few things in the past. And if I finish projects that aren't being sold per se, that's where they tend to go. Okay, and um, and then uh, Techno Babylon. More information is on it on the WagitEyeGames.com site. At under games as well. And of course, as we mentioned, it's available on Steam and GOG. And did you mention it's available on uh, iOS as well? Yes, and iPad. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, I I don't know if it's available for Mac outright, but it runs on Wine certainly. But yeah, definitely on iPad. Okay, so a few places there it's available. So I would definitely recommend that people play Techno Babylon if they haven't played it yet. It's uh, one of the best games I think of the of the last decade, and also it's one of the games that, you know, the Wajidai games that were not developed by Dave Gilbert, that people... I mean, I think all of the Wajidai games are great, but when you ask people what are your favorite Wajidai games, Techno Babylon comes up quite a lot, so... Uh, clearly you're doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> if, if so many people, you know, still like it, and it's, you know, on the Steam page, it's all thumbs up, which, again, is nearly unheard of, so I definitely recommend that people check it out, so thank you very much, James, for joining Thank me. Thank you for having me. So that was my interview with James Dearden, developer of Techno Babylon. I hope you enjoyed it, and thank you once again to James for agreeing to speak to me. And I hope to speak to him again soon. Now, if you want to hear more from James, you can also hear a spoiler special that I did with James about Techno Babylon. You can hear this on Patreon which is on the $5 tier level. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash adventure games podcast and you can then choose a tier and you can then hear the spoiler special with James. So if you have played Techno Babylon and I'd recommend everybody does, you can hear more about this game where James goes into spoiler territory. There are other spoiler specials there as well, including for scratches, Whispers of a Machine, and more. And there will be some more in the future as well. So that's it for this week. Thank you all for joining me. Next week, I will be joined, as always, by Thomas and Laura as we review the latest adventure games that we have been playing. So until then, take care, everyone. Goodbye. If you like the Adventure Games podcast, then please subscribe, rate, and review. Wherever you listen to podcasts, please leave a review on iTunes if you can, as every review helps, and reviews will help get the word out, especially for Adventure Game developers who appear on the podcast. Now, you can also follow me on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at Advent Game Pod. You can follow me on Facebook at Adventure Games Podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at Adventure Games Podcast as well. And we're also on Discord at Adventure Games Podcast. So if you are a Adventure Game developer or a Adventure Game player, you can follow us there. So again, please feel free to retweet and share podcast episodes and the podcast to people who you believe may enjoy it and you can also find more information about the podcast on www.adventuregamespodcast.com so until next time thank you
Thank you.